I got a green light. There we go. My apologies. My apologies. I was too worried about strangling myself with the cord to remember to turn it on. Uh, before we start into uh, today's portion of the Sermon on the Mount, a few announcements. Next week is the first Sunday of the month, and it's also Palm Sunday. And we are basically having Easter dinner as a potluck. So there are people bringing, uh, there are people already bringing meat. I, I won't name what all kinds, but typical uh, Easter dinner meat. So you're encouraged to bring whatever sides you think uh, are appropriate for Easter dinner. And we're going to look forward to some uh, good food and fellowship. Also, um, I think after a couple week break, women are meeting tomorrow evening, women's study tomorrow evening at 6.30 at Marsha Peterson's house. If you don't know where that is or want to talk to anybody about it, Peg will be glad to tell you. Um, Wednesday morning, men's study. What time do we call it, Efren? 6.15? He gets there about an hour earlier, so he cooks us something fantastic to eat. Man, those burritos last week were just killer. Um, you want some gourmet breakfast and some great uh, study of the word with some great men. Wednesday morning, place to be, 6.15. We usually start eating about 6.30, or we try to, don't we, Dennis? And sometimes we make it more than, you know, like three or four verses. We are in Romans 8 right now, and it's been good. I love these guys, and I love the time that we get to spend together. And then on Wednesday evening, we've had a couple week break for, uh, for spring break. Donaldo's been uh, guiding us through Galatians. And uh, we're going to start chapter 4 Wednesday. Is that right? Finish chapter 3. Okay. You know, we're probably going to be in chapter 3 today. So, here. I find this, I just have to say... Um, what we're studying on Wednesday morning, what we're studying on Wednesday night, and what we're doing, what we're going to be talking about here this morning, they're all just like this, you know, they really are, and that's not a coincidence. Uh, small, small crowd this morning, the word must have got out, Rick, the word got out that I was preaching, what? what's up with that? I think a lot of people are gone to a warmer place, or maybe they went somewhere where the preaching was better, I don't know. If you've been, if you've been uh, here any of the last several weeks, we're in Matthew 5. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going through it in Matthew. It's chapters 5 through 7, and we are approaching the halfway point of chapter 5. After a mere 8 or 9 or 10 weeks of, of being in this, but it's all good. It's all good has been our habit each time we, we start in on a Sunday to read up to where we are, and I want to do the same thing here. Start with the beginning of Matthew 5 and catch us up. Today we're going to be going through verses, well, we're going to start going through verses 17 through 20, and we'll just see where we get to. Everybody hearing me all right? Yeah, okay, great. Matthew 5, starting with verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so 
They persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How many of you have been here for most of this time we've spent in chapter 5? Most of it? Yeah. Going clear back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, I just want to review really quickly. One of the things that was brought out is poor in spirit means a recognition that we're bankrupt. That apart from God, we're bankrupt in spirit. When we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, we mourn over sin. And when we mourn over sin, it leads us to repentance. And repentance and the constant reminder of what we've been redeemed from keeps us humble. And we just go right through. We said this, the Beatitudes are really a progression. They are a progression. Last two weeks, Nate spent um, talking to us about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And one of the things he brought out was that the Beatitudes, I'm not sure Nate said this, I'm going to say this part. The Beatitudes, I believe, are Jesus telling his, his disciples, this is, the, this is what a person blessed of God, truly blessed of God, this is a description of that person. What Nate brought out last two weeks was that when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's not telling them what they ought to be. He's telling them what they are. Remember that? Like, this is, a, this is our identity. This is our responsibility. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We're going to pick up today at verse 17, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read 17 through 20, and I'm going to tell you, uh, I doubt if we'll make it that far. We'll, we'll read it and we'll see how far we get. Starting with verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to probably go to quite a few scriptures today. I put some of these outside if anybody got the list, and if you're wondering why the list is hand-lettered, that's a combination of two things, um, old guys who don't know how to use computers very well, and uh, living way out in the boondocks and not having uh, internet service for the last couple of days. I mean, Therese, who knew that our Word documents were on the cloud? So, you know, they're like, you think I'm writing this here and I can just print it, but nope, it went up, it went somewhere. Went somewhere else. So anyway, they're hand they're handwritten and they're hand lettered. Uh, I don't want to over dramatize this, but I can scarcely think of a passage of scripture uh, that would be tougher for me to try to preach about. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Uh, I read several commentators, and one of them said he, he was comment, uh, commentating about uh, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said he was really hoping that the Lord would just come back before he had to preach this. 
and 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 save him the save him the uh, I, I shouldn't say trouble. If you if you know much about church history, it's very safe to say that this passage of scripture has been highly debated and still is. Let's just read it again. Jesus said, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay, I think we're going to get a pretty deep dive in that today. But what is he goes on down and says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Hmm. Until, until certain things have happened. And then he goes on to say, whoever annuls, and by the way, I'm reading from New American Standard. If you're getting a couple of different words, I'm in the New American Standard Version. Whoever annuls one of the least of the commandments and teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends up by saying that the righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Is anyone here familiar with the term uh, antinomianism? Not trying to throw, not trying to throw out big words. Anti is against. Nomos is the law, and people who are anti. <laughs> Let's see, see if I can say it. <laughs> anti. Nomos mean they believe the law, the Old Testament law. That's done. A lot of dispensational doctrines embrace this idea. It's gone, it's back behind us. And, uh, and I don't know that we're fully going to grapple with that, but I think that's why that commentator said he was hoping the Lord would come and, and uh, spare him from having, to, from having to fully preach out this uh, passage of Scripture. You know, Jesus made a change. He made a change in in the nature of what he was talking about right at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you see that? He started off saying, this is what people blessed of God look like. That was the Beatitudes. Then he said, here's what you are. You're salt. You're light. With a warning, by the way. You're salt. Don't lose your saltiness. You're light. Don't, don't hide your light. But here he's changing gears. He's telling his disciples something I think kind of like foundational, and you, you could step back and say, why, why did Jesus start off in verse seven saying, verse 17 saying what he did not come to do? So it's kind of like a negative statement. He's making it very clear to them, hey, I did not come to abolish the law. Well, why do you think that was an important point for him to drive home right here in the Sermon on the Mount. I have an opinion. I'm not setting this down as doctrine. If you, if you think about, it says he went up with his disciples. At the, end of, at the end of chapter 7, it says he came down with the multitude. So we can only postulate that there were an awful lot of disciples or other people followed up and they listened to the Sermon on the Mount. They came, they came down uh, at the end. When, when you think about him laying this foundation saying, I want you to understand something. I do not want you to think that I'm here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. His audience, everyone there, they knew, they knew one thing. They knew the law and the prophets. Right? That's what he talks about in the next verse. The law and the prophets. Everyone clear on what the law and the prophets mean? It's, a, it's what we think of as the Old Testament. It's the Pentateuch. It's the prophets. Sometimes, and we're going to look at some scriptures, it would be referred to as the law, the prophets, and Psalms because there was a recognition that not every one of the books in the law and the prophets was written by prophets, but yet there was a recognition that even Psalms prophesied about David prophesied about the coming of Jesus in Psalms. So, so the terms, I'm just, I'm just making sure we're all familiar with the terms. When, when, we, when Jesus said to them, the law and the prophets, 
what comes to their mind is, this is what I hear read in synagogue every week. This is the thing that I've learned as a, as a young Jewish boy that I was, I was taught to understand and to learn the law and the prophets. That makes sense? For us, it's just simply, we can think of it this simply. It's the Old Testament. Jesus is coming and he's saying, I want you to understand, I didn't come to abolish that, the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. Now, when Jesus makes a statement and he says, this is what I came or did not come to do, I, I want to I look at some scriptures because these statements are made other places. And if you, I think if you go to the ones that are on uh, the list that I gave, I just want to run through a few of them. There are other places in scripture where Jesus said, I came to do this, I came to do this, I came to do this. Or there are places where this was said about him. He came for this purpose. And there, are, and there are a lot of them. We won't necessarily read them all. The first one I think I have on the list here is Matthew 3.15. This, this is when Jesus came to be baptized by John, and John said, no, I, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And he said, no, permit it at this time to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm only going to that scripture because it's one of the first places where he said, we're doing something to fulfill something. We're fulfilling all righteousness. You move along, uh, Matthew 10, 34 and 36. This is one that's sometimes difficult. Remember that what we're talking about here is what Je why Jesus came. Why Jesus said he came. We look to... Matthew 10, 34, and 36, he says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Whoa. This is a hard scripture for people because we think, oh, baby Jesus, all about peace, peace on earth. He's saying right here, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. He goes on to explain that. What does he mean when he says he came to bring a sword? He's going to, he's going to, be the dividing point between believers and non-believers. The word that he brings is going to, his gospel is going to be embraced by people and it's going to be rejected by people. And in this passage in Matthew 10, what he's talking about is he's simply saying, this is going to divide families. Fathers are going to be separated from sons over this. Mothers are going to be separated from daughters over this. Brothers and sisters... We understand this? I'm not trying to dwell on that point. I'm just saying, what? Why are we going to this? Because he said, he's saying why he came. In fact, it's worded very similar to Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I came to do this. I came to do this. I came to do this opposite thing. Don't think that I came to abolish. I came to fulfill. Don't think uh, that I came to bring peace, but instead I brought a sword, and, I'm gonna, and there's going to be division that is a result of, of what I teach and preach. Um, let's, go to, I'm gonna, let's go to Mark 10, 45. This is a... Uh, most of these are well-known. What are we talking about here? Why Jesus came. Keeps, keeps saying throughout the, uh, throughout the Gospels why he came. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, he says what he did not come for. He says what he did come for. And then he emphasizes that he came, his life would be given as a ransom. Jump over to Luke. This next one that I have on the list. Uh, Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call... See the pattern? I've not come to do this. I've come to do this. I've not come to call righteous men but sinners to repentance. 
stay in Luke. Let's jump over to the 19th chapter. Look at this next passage. Luke 19.10. You may say, Steve, you seem to be getting a long way from the law and the prophets. We'll get back to that. Um, What I'm looking at here and what I want us to look at is the places where Jesus said why he came. He, He makes a statement in Matthew 17. He makes a statement a lot of other places as well. 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. John 10.10. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Again, he's saying why he came. Notice he said a lot of different reasons he came. These are connected, but they're, but they're pretty diverse. John 18, 37. This one is Jesus' testimony before Pilate. But again, he's saying why he came. John 18, 37. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered and said, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And 1 John 3.8. Now we're not in the Gospels anymore. We're in John's letter, 1 John 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Here's the part I wanted to draw your attention to. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's a lot of scripture, and I'm not even even, uh, saying that those are all the instances, but but I would like to point out this. I think everything that we just read, to my understanding, to my way of looking at it, is a subheading of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. In other words, when he said, I came to fulfill the law, when he said, I came to reveal truth, when he said, I came to uh, be a ransom, all those things, those are subheadings of the statement that he's making in, in 5.17. Does that make sense? In other words... Each of these instances that we just looked at, they are they're examples, they're finer examples of how he came to fulfill the law. Now I want to look at some scriptures about the law and the prophets. Jesus said, not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Let's look at some of the scriptures that have to do with the law and the prophets. Starting with Luke 4. This is a familiar story. One that I can scarcely read this without the hair on the back of my neck standing up because you think about the import of what of what happens in this story. This is Luke chapter 4. In Luke's gospel, this is right after Jesus came from being tempted in the wilderness. Okay? He returned. Said, I'll jump back a couple verses. Luke 4, 13. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Verse 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. 
And now here's the part of the story that I want to draw attention to. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book. Actually, I should read scroll. The American Standard says book, but it's a scroll. We understand that. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it goes on to say, and all were speaking well of him for a little while, but it didn't last very long. If you go a few more verses, they wanted to take him out to the brow of the hill and stone him. And he escaped miraculously. But what struck them, what angered them so much, wasn't his reading of the scripture. It was when he started calling the nation of Israel into account. And he said, you know, the days of Elijah, this widow, uh, there were a lot of widows in Israel, he said. But, but Elijah went to this one. And there were a lot of lepers in Israel. It was Naaman that was healed of leprosy. And they didn't want to hear that. But if you put yourself in the position, and I, and I emphasize this just for a minute, because remember, the disciples that Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount to, the people that are in the multitude, for all we know, some of them may have been in the synagogue at Nazareth this day. We don't know. They may have been there and heard him pull out the scroll and read Isaiah 61 and sit down and say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine that? Like, you went to synagogue every week, all your life. And one day, a guy walks in and opens up the scroll and reads and says, you just heard this scripture fulfilled just now. Well, it's either going to be awe-inspiring or maybe anger-inspiring or something. It had to get their attention. That's why I say it's hard for me to read, this, uh, to read this story without the hair on the back of my neck standing up because you just picture yourself being there and thinking, wow, God's son in human form read from the scroll synagogue. Of course, they, they hadn't accepted that fact about him. But it's just amazing. We go there because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law of the prophets. And I think this is the very first instance in scripture where he fulfilled the law of the prophets and he said, I just fulfilled it. That's what I just did. I just read it and fulfilled it right here. Let's go, let's go stay in Luke and go to uh, uh, Luke 16. These are other places where um, the law and the prophets are are being referred to in the in the gospels in Scripture. Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. John the Baptist. Okay? The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Okay, we're not going to go into the forcing your way into the kingdom. Uh, I'll be doing good if I get through a couple of other things here. And, um, but this is one of the first places where the, the word basically says, Hey, it was the law and the prophets up till right here. And then something changed. All right? We're going to develop that more, if not today, next week. But 
But this is the first scripture where, and it's, and it's Jesus saying, yeah, it was the law and the prophets up until John. And then what did John say? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a different thing. That was not what the law and the prophets said. Law and the prophets didn't say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the, that was the new that was the new thing, the, the foreshadowing of the new covenant that was coming. Let's stay in Luke. And uh, I'm going to go right to the end of it here. I think you guys are familiar with these, with these two passages out of Luke 24. This is after Jesus was resurrected. And he's on the, his disciples are on the road to Emmaus. And he walks up and he just starts walking with them. It says he started traveling with them. And in, and in verse 16, this is Luke 24, 16, it says, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So Jesus, resurrected from the dead, is walking along with a couple of his disciples. And they don't know that it's him. All right? The thing I want to draw attention to here is... Uh, Drop down to verse 20. Let's see. Well, let's start at 22. They're, they're, describing, uh, they're describing to the stranger they're walking with what's been happening. All right? They said, also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in, in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus, who they don't recognize. They don't recognize him. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. And, then he, and if you jump over, he, he has breakfast with them, you remember, and then he disappears, and then he reappears. And if we go down to uh, verse 44, this is, his, this is another appearance uh, after the road to Emmaus. It, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Go back to Matthew 5.17. He's saying, uh, I came not to abolish, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The reason I want to take us through these passages is that's what's in common with all these passages. It's the, is the law and the prophets. Jesus talking about it, or one of the disciples is talking about it. Let's go to uh, a couple more here. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 45. This is when Philip was telling Nathanael about Jesus. And Philip recognized who it was he had just met. John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I want to look at one more because this is the, this is the scripture that's going to start showing what really happened between the law and the prophets and the gospel, the new covenant. Matthew 22, and verses 36 through 40. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I want to to jump ahead a little bit uh, to the next verses here in in Matthew 5. I just want to talk about them briefly. And I want to come back and, and kind of finish up on 17. Verse 18 says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until... All is accomplished. Okay. Let's have, have heaven and earth passed away yet? Nope. I walked in this morning on dirt. And if we walk outside and look up, we'll see the heavens. It's still here. Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, will they pass away? Yeah, they'll pass away. Matthew 24. But Jesus is saying, until that happens, nothing about the law, not the smallest detail of the law is going anywhere. <clears throat> I'll, just, I'll just maybe cut to the chase and tell you guys <laughs> that uh, I do not embrace antinomianism because it does away with the law completely. And I think what Jesus is saying here Verse 18 is mm-mm, now. Now, what we're going to have to put, what we're going to have to pull out is: the, does the law go away, or does the covenant change? And I and I believe uh, that one's probably outside the scope of finishing today. But but I want to but I want to at least tease it a little bit. When, if we go to, let, let's just let's just jump ahead a little bit to. Uh, let's look at uh, Galatians five. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig up a couple of those like short word bomb verses. Galatians 5.18, it's a short verse. This is Paul talking, of course, and we're still a couple weeks away from this one, aren't we, Donaldo? Yeah. Depending on how fast we go. (laughs) If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Oh. Well, Jesus just said the law isn't going anywhere. Paul just said, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So, so what up? <laughs> Want to look at another passage, 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. I don't, I didn't, I don't have these on the sheet, do I? My apologies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9. And let's look at uh, verse, starting at verse 17. This is Paul again. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew. I'll just insert, was Paul a Jew? Oh yeah. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's what he said in... uh, Philippians 3, he he, he was going to put his reputation as a Pharisee against anybody's reputation as a Pharisee. He makes this statement, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Paul's making it very clear. 
He's not under the law. Hmm. Okay. He said back in Galatians, you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul's making this statement right here. And what he's, what he's describing is, not that he's being hypocritical, that he's adapting to the people that he's with in the terms of identifying with them, potentially not causing them to stumble as he presents a word to them. All right? So what he's saying is, when he's around people who are under the law, he'll present himself as one under the law. But he's not under the law. Actually, what he says, if you catch it, is he says, um, under the law of Christ. Look at that in verse 21. Go back up to 20. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are, who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. I want to look at uh, a passage in Hebrews. Again, I'm given this big caveat. This is not the... This is not the summation of these verses. This is us just looking ahead. I want to come back and wrap up verse 17 because I, I don't think we're done with verse 17. But I want to not just tease out but look ahead and say, wow, there's a, there's a thing here that we need to understand. We have people, we have Jesus saying, not, a, not the slightest iota of this thing is going away. And I came to fulfill it. And we have apostles saying, I'm not under it. We need, to, we need to understand that. And if one of you wants to come back next Sunday and finish this message up for me, that'd be fine. <laughs> I'm kidding you, but, but only sort of. It's, this is a, it's a challenging thing to be here. And I should have said this at the beginning. You, I think you guys know this. I'm not up here expounding this word because I think I'm the expert on it, all right? I'm just telling you what I believe the word says and what I believe I understand about the word. And if someone here has a, uh, <laughs> has a more perfect exp uh, understanding or explanation, wow, lay it on me. Seriously, I'm not, I'm not setting forth I'm just reading the word. If I give an opinion, I'll tell you it's my opinion. And by God's grace, my opinion will fade right out of your brain if it was a bad opinion, all right? I want to be crystal clear about that. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to look at Jesus having said not one iota of this going away. And yet juxtaposed to that, seemingly, in Scripture are these other statements like, we're not under it, we're not under it. Go to Hebrews uh, chapter 8. We'll probably be in Hebrews a lot next week. And this is after, you know, th this is the description of the new covenant where a lot of Jeremiah uh, 31 has been quoted here about the the law being written on our hearts, not, to, not on stone. It's going to be written on our hearts. And the wind-up to, um, to this chapter of Hebrews, verse 13, and when he said, what's he talking about? He said, a new covenant, he's referring back, referring back to the beginning, or to the this passage from Jeremiah, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. So in other words, under the law and the prophets, and, and Dennis led us through a, a lengthy uh, review of the different covenants down through history. There's a covenantal change. I think everyone here understands that. But the old covenant 
it's gone. Under the new covenant, the old covenant is gone. They're not, they, don't, they don't travel along side by side. The old covenant went away. The new covenant was established in Christ. And this may seem over, this, I mean, this really may seem over basic, but do you guys realize how much uh, doctrinal uh, energy has been expended <laughs> over this stuff? Through over centuries, literally, and church splits and uh, major disagreements about an understanding of these things. By God's grace, I just want us to have a proper understanding of it, all right? I want to be sure that I have a proper understanding of it. That's why I invite you to smack me around if you think for some reason that I don't. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna draw that out later. My good brother Rick reminded me of a scripture this week, and it's one of my favorites. In fact, did we sing this recently, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect? Did we sing that? Yeah. Well, if we haven't, we ought to. It's great. You know, okay, think now. We're going we're gonna to read a lot about about the law and the, and the old covenant um, being re, the, the old covenant being replaced by a new covenant we're going to have to get in and, and I think understand the different aspects of the law but that the law is a wonderful thing is undeniable and it's, and it's talked about over and over in scripture I'm in Psalm 19 and I'm starting with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect or complete or blameless. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And you guys are familiar, I think, with Psalm 1 where it says, um, in his law, man meditates day and night, like thinking about the law of God and just thinking about how, what this psalm just said, it's blameless. It, it, it converts my heart, it, it, it opens my eyes, it makes me to see clearly, it keeps me clean, it keeps me pure. We have to balance the fact that we just read scripture that said, not under the law. And we just read scripture that said, the law is perfect. Well, the Lord's perfect. Can they both be true? Yep. Both be true. But we'll but we'll deal with that more next week. I wanna I wanna go back and I wanna wrap up something here on seventeen. Um, and then I might be done uncustomarily early. Like last time I think it was way late. Uh, I talked too long, Rick. That's why. It was that simple. When we look at how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, I think everyone here understands he did it in his life. I mean, in his human life, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Why? Because he lived the law sinlessly. Only, only individual who ever did. No one else walked out the law sinlessly. So he fulfilled the law in his life. He fulfilled the law in his death as well. He was fulfilling all kinds of prophecy. But if you think about the sacrifice that he made, there's, it's absolutely undisputable that 
Is there any more blood sacrifice anymore? No. Of course there isn't. Why? Because he made the perfect sacrifice. And he did it, and he offered himself to do it. Think about the, think about the blood of sheep and lambs and goats and rams and bulls. None of them were volunteering. They were picked. Their blood was offered out, but it wasn't voluntary. Jesus made it very clear. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. He fulfilled the law in his walked-out human existence on this earth. He fulfilled the law through death. He fulfilled the law through resurrection and ascension. Because he became our advocate. He became our great high priest. And we're going to look at that, I guarantee you, some more next week. Up until Jesus, the high priests were weak. <laughs> Let's just say. They, they had human weaknesses. And before they could even go into the Holy of Holies once a year, they had to make an offering for themselves. And I'm sure you guys know this, but like they tied a rope on them in case they had to drag them back out because they went in unpure into the presence of the Lord. That'd be the end. Jesus became our high priest, the perfect high priest. He, like, he did it all. He was the sacrificial lamb but he also became our high priest and our advocate. Boy, do I like that. Because <laughs> you know what it means. It means when it means when the enemy says, ah, Rick, ah, Brian, ah, Steve. Jesus says, acquitted. Jesus says, acquitted. Advocates before the Father and He intercedes on our behalf. More on that later. Jesus fulfilled the law in His life. He fulfilled the law in His death. He fulfilled the law in His resurrection and ascension. And then I'm going to drop one small bomb on the way out. And we're right here in, uh, on Wednesday mornings as will be attested by those who are there. Did you know that he came to fulfill the law in his people? Did you know that he came to fulfill the law in you? He did. Let's look at Romans 8. I'm not going to Romans 8 because we're there on Wednesday morning. I'm going to Romans 8 because this is where it fits. <laughs> right here. This is a this is a maybe the maybe the part of the doctrine that is uh, a little different. I think everyone accepts, yes, Christ lived a sinless life. Yes, Christ gave him life. I'm not making light of any of this. I got that part. How about this part? How about this part? So let's just start with verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to this flesh but according to the spirit Jesus fulfilled the law in his life he fulfilled the law in his death he fulfilled the law through his resurrection and being ascended to the right hand of the father and what this says is uh <clears throat> The requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. You and me, Dennis. Us. That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know, I think I'm going to get done in record time. Um, this week. I said something about this a few weeks ago, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. These teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is so widely known, it's so widespread. Hillary Clinton's favorite passage of Scripture. Barack Obama's favorite passage of Scripture. You know, but but I don't even think they think of it as Scripture. I'm just saying, this is well known. The words of Jesus are well known. The radical nature of what Jesus said is, I think, widely, widely misunderstood. And I want to make sure that we embrace what Jesus was really talking about and don't get into our mind the gobbledygook version of the Sermon on the Mount. Because there is a, there is a lot of thinking that, you know, Jesus came to uh, restore social justice. Jesus came to bring world peace. We just read, we just read Matthew 10. Uh-uh, I don't think so. He didn't come to bring peace. Or he didn't come merely, he did these things. Don't misunderstand me. He did these things, but he didn't come merely to heal the sick and clothe the naked. And he, he didn't come just to be a great moral teacher. And we can all sit here and read these high moral standards and then walk out and try and do our best to emulate what he said. <laughs> you know, we can say to ourselves, you know, man, if I just really focus, if I just really focus hard and uh, concentrate all my energy toward it, an exercise of my best self-discipline, maybe I can live a life pleasing to God. Uh, I'll insert something. That's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. That is exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. And I'll insert something else. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody here can do it. Not of your, not on your own. Not on your own. Doesn't matter how much focus we think we can muster. Doesn't matter how much discipline we think, self-discipline we think we can muster up. It's not within our power to do it outside of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. More on that next week. I want to submit a kind of a parting thought to you. Jesus didn't fulfill the law purely by what he did. He fulfilled the law because of who he is. Right. It wasn't just his actions. It was his very nature. It's who he is. And I'm going to, by extension, say, we're not going to please the Father by what we do. Out of our own volition. We're going to please the Father by who we are in Christ. It's our identity that will bring about whatever actions we have. It's not our actions that will, that will make our identity. Does that make sense? So important for us to keep in mind. And who we are is the whole point of the new birth. We're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't exist for our own self-fulfillment. We're bond servants. And bond servants are the willing slaves. They're slaves motivated by love. 
We're bond servants of Jesus Christ. We're bond servants of the one who redeemed us and grants us abundant and eternal life. Thank you guys for your patience. Um, thank you for bearing with me. We, we really, I consider that we got through 17 pretty good, dipped into 18 a ways and still have a couple to go. <laughs> All right. I really appreciate you guys. Love you. Thank you for your patience.